Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's very special guest, whose books and presence are so meaningful for today's present moment. Her name is Roshi Joan Halifax, and this is one of the most special conversations I've had to date. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, Those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. I think there are a number of uh, ways that we move into action that's characterized by integrity and where, you know, healthy altruism and compassion are present. You know, one is really, I'm very grateful that I'm an old Buddhist, (laughs) you know, with years of behind me and the practice of, you know, cultivating attentional balance, cultivating emotional balance, really being able to self-reflect on what's going on in my body what's happening in the stream of my emotions and thoughts. So, you know, all of this has been of, you know, benefit to to me over the years of practice in terms of stabilizing myself and being more resourced, more able to engage, less done in by the work that I do. I mean, you know, I'm 80 years old and I feel mostly full of life. and humor and so forth. And I really attribute it to the the mindset that has come out of these decades of, of practice. So says my guest today, the brilliant Joan Halifax, a Buddhist teacher, Zen priest, anthropologist, and author of many books, including Being with Dying and Standing at the Edge. The founder, abbot, and head teacher of Upaya Zen Center, a Buddhist monastery in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Joan has dedicated her life's work to engaged and applied Buddhism, 
with a particular emphasis on end-of-life care. Today, she shares with us wisdom gleaned from Zen traditions, mindfulness practices, and the Buddhist approach to death, drawing from her groundbreaking research on compassion and decades of experience working with the dying and their caregivers all the while. As our current reality pushes us all to the existential exploration of suffering, altruism, and meaning, Joan's words become an exceptionally valuable source of inspiration, guiding us to the edges of our human experience in order to discover wise hope, truth, and a fuller realization of what it is to be alive. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I feel like everything that you write about in both being with dying and standing at the edge is essential. And it's one of the things that I talk about a lot on this podcast. It's our aversion for death and how that keeps us from really living. And it's not wise, right? It's it's half living, I think, when we live sort of clenched in fear. And do you feel like that's changed? I mean, going through this pandemic and the way that all of us have been confronted with mortality, do you see it changing or evolving? You know, it's it's a very interesting question that you're asking. I think the pandemic has brought a lot of attention to the limitations in our healthcare system, to the truth of our mortality, surprise that very difficult circumstances can befall us in a moment. Who, I mean, whoever anticipated, some people anticipated a pandemic happening, but you know, in general, we had no idea. This just, it was like a bolt out of the blue. And I think that the bolt out of the blueness of it, combined with social isolation, combined with the cracks in our medical system, really put us, put many of us into a kind of existential exploration of what is our life about? Mm -hmm. What is meaningful for us? How do I really want to spend my time? Who is important to me? What is important to me? Whom must I forgive? Who To whom I must I share my love? Who do I want to be with me as I'm dying? You know, these very profound existential and psychosocial questions. So, you know, in a way, it's been a kind of mixed blessing, so much grief. We're talking about just the number of deaths as a result of the pandemic is just staggering, not only in our country of the United States, but all over the world. And how do you hold both the grief of loss of life of those close to you, but also the global grief? And how do you also hold the grief of the loss of a sense of security, which was fabricated anyway, <laughs> exactly. but nonetheless? So, you know, I think it, it we've learned, many of us have learned so much about ourselves and each other as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, it's not separate either from the climate catastrophe. Mm -hmm. You know, the relationship between the two is in terms of the, the deeper questions that we're living with at this time or the war in Ukraine. You know, these are events in an era of radical change in our society. And do we have the wherewithal, the, the resilience the internal stability 
to turn toward the truth of suffering as it is and to allow our compassion to be fully deployed or engaged, manifested. Yeah, you know, nodding profusely to everything that you're saying. And I also think that in time COVID, even as much as many of us can't agree on the facts of it or the truth of it, is one of the first moments, at least in my life, where we have a universal context for or frame for a conversation. You know, we all went through something together and true of climate as well, although there are so many or, or not as many as I like to think, I think that we're led to believe who are deniers. I think most people live on the spectrum of some alarm to extreme alarm. But I feel like COVID is an opportunity in some ways to have a conversation where we're all talking about the same thing. Yeah, I think you're you're right. And in a way, you're unfortunately right, because COVID, it was a short-term catastrophe, relatively speaking, and it's not over yet. People are still dying of COVID. People are still getting sick from COVID. But the longer-term view brings us right to the question of our climate catastrophe, and not just climate refugees, which are pouring out of the you know, equatorial countries from, you know, the Americas and Africa and around the Asian Gulf. But it's, you know, it's something that will affect the most privileged, Mm -hmm. most protected. There's just, you know, you can maybe get on a spaceship and go to Mars. It just doesn't look very <laughs> appealing to me. I live in the Southwest. So I know I like it here it like. personally. Yeah. And if I this like- is the, the case, then you know, taking care of where we are, our nest, our earth. And we do have the opportunity at this time, just like palliative medicine, palliative care can extend life we can actually dial down some of the feedback loops that have you know are in process around you know water issues in particular whether it's you know the melting of the poles or the des- desertification in, of various parts of the world we we can, we can change this we can do it i agree i agree i woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat throwing bedding off of me Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. 
ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your ChiliPad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. We'll move to standing at the edge and and because I definitely want to talk about sort of toxic altruism and and so many of those the dualities that you set up there are really beautiful. But first, you know, thinking of being with dying, for example, this is I think for a lot of people maybe the first time in their lives that they contemplated their own mortality, right? And those nine those nine contemplations yeah. are so stunning and and for people who are listening and being with dying, which is, I grew up with Ira Bayok's daughters, by the way, we went to school oh, together. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. But I, the nine contemplations, which are, you know, my lifespan is ever decreasing. All of us will die sooner or later. Death comes whether or not I am prepared. And you, the exercises that you do with those are really stunning. But I do think it was the first time for many people, particularly younger people, to grapple with that. And it's difficult, really hard work, actually, the hardest. Yeah, I I completely agree. And those nine contemplations that you've just shared, Elise, are, you know, they're completely obvious, you know, know, death is inevitable. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, that's right. And at the moment of our death, our bodies no help to us. That's number nine. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) My loved ones cannot save me. Correct. Exactly. And all of the stuff that I've got in my storage locker can't either. <laughs> so, you know, for me, it really comes down to a lease of what it means to have integrity, to have a strong moral character, you know, to meet a world with courage and sensitivity, with strength and with tenderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what it means to be a human being and, and aware of the suffering and the joys of of that are present in our life and in the lives of others. You know, often I think about, so often it's, this interview is happening on International Women's Day and it'll probably be aired at another time, but it's for me, just thinking about a young woman like Malala, you know, Mm -hmm. who took a bullet to the head in her great dedication to bring education to women in her culture, girls in her culture. And it really has to do with, you know, how aligned are we with our deepest values? Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's Malala's, you know, profound inspiration to all of us, of her courage and her commitment, but also, you know, how we have worked the edge of this pandemic so that it has not permanently crushed us as an individual, but actually built a kind of strength of character because we've turned toward our lives in a much more reflective way, Mm. come to value our relationships, come to cherish this earth, 
and come to deep appreciation for the value of community, including the community of all beings. Mm, Beautiful. No, and I think that that's, that is the greatest gift of standing at the edge too. And I think that this is true. This is true of everything that we're talking about and everything having to do with COVID that the two sides of it, right? The shadow side, the grief, the loss of life, the devastation, and then also a collective pause, right? Many, many of my friends experience both sides and look at this time with fondness as dark as it is, right? As a moment when they recalibrated, got in touch with their values, realigned with their integrity, and are living in a different way. Hopefully, hopefully we can hold on to some of those strands as we move forward. But within the edge states, altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, engagement, these are the five that you explore. All venerable, beautiful ideas, right? But as people, I think we get so entranced with the goodness, quote unquote, or positivity, or like our own valor and the ways that we embrace these ideas that we miss how complex they are, the shadow side. Your book was such a relief to me, because I think we, we use these words, right? Like armor. And we can go in and with this like, I'm fixing or I'm donating or I'm full of altruism. Don't come at me. I am protected, right, by right. this instinct. So can you talk about this, like the, the nuance, the duality of these ideas? Yeah. So, you know, probably some of the listeners know I, I've been in the end-of-life care field for many decades, starting in the early 1970s. Then in the 90s, in addition to my work with dying people and clinicians, I began to also work in the prison system on death row and maximum security as a volunteer. And throughout these decades, sitting in the charnel grounds of our society, I experienced a lot, including a lot of failure. You know, I had I had moments of just complete and utter burnout. I had moments where I I think I was reenacting my mother's sort of meme of sort of caricature of altruism and so forth. And I also had many moments of empathic distress. And then, you know, with the years of work with people who are engaged in coming alongside people in situations of intense suffering, you know, I've heard a lot. And I wanted to, number one, was to somehow identify the, you know, series of qualities that are really important to our human experience. And you name them, you know, it's altruism, empathy, respect, integrity, and engagement. And also what I learned from myself, my own experience, and also from others is that each of these qualities, which are absolutely essential for us as humans to to live by, to live with, to foster, to generate, that each of these qualities has a shadow aspect that is so damaging. And I knew it personally. (laughs) There's nothing in the book I probably haven't experienced myself. But boy, have I heard it in a dramatic way in the lives of others. And I also, Elise, was very interested in how compassion, as I began to map out the valences, the aspects of compassion, 
how, in fact, it was the pivot or it was the, the very platform where these the shadow side of these important virtuous processes in our human life could be transformed out of the toxic expression into healthy expression, you know, the good, healthy expressions. So that's the basic premise, you know, in the book. It's a deep dive say into altruism you know we what we can do what we do is you know caring individuals to benefit others and so forth but you know when it's coming out of ego or identity it becomes pathological altruism you know when we harm ourselves excessively when we disempower others when we damage our institution when we do this you know we're altruistic to gain social merit you know, mm-hmm. that's all pathological altruism. And yeah. activating compassion would, would transforms it, for example. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And I think anyone who's listening, this idea of pathological altruism, we've all seen it and experienced it, right? Like, particularly, we're living in such a, a performative time. And I think a lot of us have gotten really important lessons in what it is to actually be an ally or offer support rather than fixing or, you know, are what are you doing this for? Are you yeah. doing this so that you <laughs> feel good? Or are you doing this out of a completely egoless, unselfish gesture? So how how is that transformed? Is it just the checking of oneself and one's intention? I, I think there are a number of uh, ways that we move into action that's characterized by integrity and where, you know, healthy altruism and compassion are present. You know, one is really, I'm very grateful that I'm an old Buddhist, (laughs) you know, with (laughs) years of behind me and the practice of, you know, cultivating attentional balance, cultivating emotional balance, really being able to self-reflect on what's going on in my body what's happening in the stream of my emotions and thoughts. So, you know, all of this has been of, you know, benefit to to me over the years of practice in terms of stabilizing myself and being more resourced, more able to engage, less done in by the work that I do. I mean, you know, I'm 80 years old and I feel mostly full of life. And humor and so forth. And I really attribute it to the the mindset that has come out of these decades of of practice. So I, I want to just mention that, you know, and also there's been in our culture a great emphasis on mindfulness. And I feel like the frontier that is, you know, really important for us to open to at this time is compassion. And to understand what compassion is composed of. So part of what I did was develop a heuristic map of compassion because I wanted to be able to train people in compassion in a way that was accessible and that made sense to people who were not just Buddhists, but to (laughs) non-Buddhists as well, since many of the people that I work with, in fact, are, sorry, in fact, are not Buddhists. So, you know, that work, which is also in the book, Standing at the Edge, I I won't go into it, you know, extensively here. But, you know, what I learned, compassion is not a kind of sappy 
religious thing. I mean, it involves attentional balance. It involves our intention uh, being, you know, fundamentally altruistic. It involves our capacity to be self-reflective, to understand what's happening in our own subjectivity, our capacity to be empathic. It involves our capacity to have an intention, which is very healthy and unselfish, and the ability to discern deeply and then to engage because we feel concern and we act out of that concern. Yeah. So, so you know, you... I'm giving you a very condensed view, but you see, compassion is very nuanced and it involves mindfulness indeed, but it involves a number of other factors as well. And when I began to explore compassion more deeply, I realized as I applied compassion to each of these edge states, you mentioned, you know, the edge state of altruism, empathy, and so forth, I realized actually the pivot out of the toxic aspect of each of these edge states was in fact compassion. Mm. And it it just, you know, as I began this deeper exploration, it completely, you know, totally inspired me. It was like, yes. So that is, you know, the kind of key to the book Standing at the Edge, which, you know, is saying these qualities are important essential, but also at the same time, you can go over the edge so easily and harm yourself, harm others, harm the institution that you're engaged in, harm the institution or even the nation that you're endeavoring to serve, and so forth. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right 
therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com P-T-T. I want to read that Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen teaching that you include helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as whole. And then she talks about how when you help, you can take away from people more than we could ever give them. You may diminish their self-esteem, their sense of worth, integrity, and wholeness. When I help, I am very aware of my own strength. But we don't serve with our strength. We serve with ourselves. So beautiful. And thinking about both that and sort of going into that a little bit more deeply, but with going to compassion, isn't one of the core teachings and something that we all struggle to do that first we have to practice compassion with ourselves? You know, I think that's a very interesting question, Elise, because from one point of view, there is no separate self from the Buddhist perspective. (laughs) And so, you know, (laughs) self-compassion is, you could say, a kind of first step of healing our relationship to an identity which we fabricated. (laughs) And so it's, you know, it's an interesting thing. But I think it is, you know, you can... Uh, hate your your little self that just makes your little self even stronger. You can hyper cherish your little self, which makes your little self even stronger. And yet, until we heal that relationship, which is so often as a result of issues within our family system, we're stuck in this kind of grip of the inherent self identity. That gives us a sense of, you know, it's it's our ego sense of being real and true. When in fact, from the point of view, say, of the wonderful teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, you begin to realize that the self is coextensive with everything, including the atmosphere that we're breathing, including the ants that are moving across the walkway including those people in Ukraine, both on the side of Russia and on the side of Ukraine, who are in the grip of a terrible war. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's it's really this, uh, the deep realization of interconnectedness, interdependence, and interpenetration that comes from dropping, you know, into, out of the small self, which, you know, As long as we've got all these wounds on our little self, that's where we're going to rest. And so self-compassion practice is probably a way that those wounds are addressed. Yeah. And detachment too, right? Which is so difficult, I think, again, going to the ego, but spending time with palliative care, people like you or like my good friend, BJ Miller, and talking a lot about, you know, again, it goes to that fixing, but sort of the instincts often from our own feelings of distress and sympathy or wanting to interfere because what's happening is deeply uncomfortable to us, right? And then similarly, you have this list. I don't remember the exact context, but I wrote it down because it's so beautiful. But this idea that often when we move to fix or to help, or even in the best expression of best empathic or compassionate expression of altruism, we want the validation, right? That it 
helps. <laughs> and one of the first things in this list is, may I offer my care and presence unconditionally, knowing that it may be met by gratitude, indifference, anger, or anguish. And you go on, but that's such a big teaching, right? How do you show up in the world and ideally serve without needing the gratification or validation that what you are offering is wanted, needed, or lovingly received? Yeah. So, you know, one perspective has to do with a non-dual relationship to compassion or of compassion. And also, well, let me just cite the example of Shantideva, who wrote the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. In that text, it's kind of a wonderful image. You know, if, if you step on a thorn, your hand immediately goes to pull the thorn out of your foot. It doesn't ask the foot, well, how do you feel about that? Or am I going to be praised? <laughs> and so on. This experience of universal compassion where you're not separate in a fundamental way from those who are suffering. But from another point of view, you know, in terms of empathy, over-identification can be crushing for you. So I think that one of the things that comes up in this work, you know, is to really understand that compassion can have an expression that is what I call common compassion. That is that, you know, there's a self uh, that feels concern and wants to benefit suffering being, but also according to you know, the, the deepest texts in my tradition, there's no self, there's no other, just like pulling the thorn out of the foot. There's not that distinction that's made. You know, I like the way Matthieu Riccardi says, you know, a person who has this quality of universal compassion is at the ready. It's adaptive, it's responsive, it's context dependent. It de completely depends on the situation of, you know, what is unfolding in the present moment and what your response will be. Mm. So, you know, it's all it, it, saying that compassion is like this. No, compassion is an adaptive response mm. to benefit yeah. others. Yeah, I mean, it goes to the title of your book, Being With Dying, right? This The practice of being with people at the, for some, the scariest transition of their life and knowing how to stay there without necessarily intervention or that's quite quite a practice right and knowing also that you have to let that people have to go through that alone as much as the self is separate and i love this is a small moment in that book but you are talking about going to biosphere 2 yeah. and <laughs> You you notice that the trees are tethered by wire to the ceiling, and you ask the scientist, and he says that the trees are weak because there's no wind, there's no resistance, and so they have to be held up. And we know that from life, right? Like there, those moments when we most want to be saved, we shouldn't be saved. So it's hard, that line between letting things unfold for people without intervention and or recognizing that that's what speeds growth or an opportunity to get bigger, even those really, really hard things, and the moment when you step in? Yeah, well, you know, this is a very good question because it points to being adaptive. 
being yeah. responsive at the you know of the level of integrity the algorithms that are described for example in in medicine are ones that are prescriptive and every situation is unique so mm-hmm. so i think that this is you know this is a point well taken about compassion is completely adaptive you know if a child is suffering before you you will you know get on your knees and hold that little child for example you know you're not going to say well the child let's see if i'm going to get social merit for hugging this child or <laughs> will that child's mother like me better or you know you just do what is natural and i think mm-hmm. that part of the work that we're all challenged to do is in a certain way is to to really rehumanize ourselves and to you know move out of the kind of futility or skepticism and the objectification of others where our capacity to care is uh, diminished and of course you know compassion deficit adversely affects those who experience it whether you're in the healthcare profession or what so you know yeah. what we want to do is have a surfeit of compassion not a deficit I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at FrameBridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit FrameBridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's FrameBridge.com. I think it's incumbent on all of us to, in some ways, to those who might be 
the recipients or those who someday will be on our deathbed. And this is why I think being with dying, regardless of whether you're in process with someone or it might not happen for 40 or 50 years, it's such a useful act to go through this process. And, and one of the exercises that you give is to imagine your death, not in a death meditation way, although the, those can be really valuable too, but in this, what do you want? Like, where would you want to be? Who would you want to be there? Not as like a fantasy, but as a reality for understanding and being able to ad- articulate or advocate for yourself in that moment. And ideally, I mean, this is where I get practical, but my brother-in-law died when he was young in his sleep. And we were so un- obviously completely unprepared, as was he. And so you're left on the other side of that tragedy, puzzling through what what would he want? We had no idea. And yeah. so actually doing this, even when you're 20 or 30, and writing it down for someone is loving, I think. Loving. Yeah. And a roadmap, I think, for people who are caring for you. And it's really interesting to think about like the... Again, going to being with dying when you were talking about how so many people, obviously you've sat with thousands of people, I would guess, how many people need to be alone. I thought that was so beautiful, in part because of attachment, right? That to detach, you can't be in the presence of the person you don't want to leave. Beautiful, because it's so nuanced around how we actually think people want to go. I think I would want to be alone. You know? Yeah, I, you know, it says in a way a couple of things. One is that we so often interfere in the journey of dying as a way to soothe ourselves, to, you know, kind of take care of our own grief or and, and so forth. But what we've learned is, you know, how can you come alongside a dying person in such a way that you're not interfering? You're truly being with dying instead of assisting with dying. (laughs) Yeah. No, and it's, I think, really worth contemplating because in the same with any of these ed states, the way that we receive someone's altruism or someone's compassion or someone's experience, their integrity, that says a lot about how, I don't think many of us stop to think about that, right? What would I appreciate? Well, and you know, it's such an interesting question. I have a very close friend who's a renowned doctor who's had several strokes, and his wife called me the other day saying, you know, my husband had a minor stroke and then a major stroke and has actually said to me, it's it's time for, for me to go. Mm. You know, I've done my work, he said. I've written so many books. I have really feel complete with my life. And let's plan how my dying can be the best it can be. And also, here's what I want at my memorial service. I was mm. like, oh, wow. That was beautiful. It was a very moving conversation with his wife. And, you know, that's a kind of remarkable path that he's chosen. You know, some people choose that path, I would say, in a a less wise way. But I feel that his choice and what what he, he wants now is really coming from a base of love and wisdom. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about the Buddhist perspective or the Buddhist view 
And that is that not just the dying process, which is a, a deeply sh a process of shedding, if you will, or dissolution, but the moment of death, death point, is that moment for the greatest potential of realization, of awakening, mm -hmm. of full liberation. And it's, you know, it's a different view than we have in the West. I quite like the Buddhist view, actually. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, the Christian view is and the view of various other non-Buddhist traditions, I think also beneficial of, you know, heaven and hell, which are to me states of mind and so forth. But ultimately, at least death is a mystery. Yes. I rest with it in that way. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of in working with your texts or working sort of with your teachings, what do you have like a, a great hope for people? Or is there anything, you know, we started talking about the environment? How do we actually that's, that's where I'd like to end with you. How do we summon everything that we'll need for for this? For, for what's ahead of us. I think we, we're all recognizing what's coming, increasing suffering, and it's going to be hard. I, I believe like you that we can do this, but it will we'll suffer. What would you like to see people bring, bring to this? Well, what I want to see people not to bring to it is futility. <laughs> futility is of no use. Yeah. And I want to cite my own work on hope something I've called wise hope, which is not hope with an outcome pressing against the field of hope, but wise hope is actually hope that is informed by the truth of uncertainty, by mm -hmm. also what Vaclav Havel has talked about in terms of even if you know you have no idea of the outcome or you see that the outcome is not going to be positive, you still show up and you do what is good and right and necessary to do. Mm -hmm. And I also want to cite the work of my beloved friend, Rebecca Solnit. You know, we are kind of the Hope Sisters along with Joanna Macy. You know, here's three women and it's International Women's Day. And I just want to cite my elder of great heart and brilliance who's written beautifully about active hope. That is, you know, you just show up no matter. And Rebecca, who's written so brilliantly about hope. And it's just hope gives our life meaning, drive, and a sense of who we really are. Well... That was an honor. I um, Standing at the Edge is an essential read. She clarifies and puts context around these really big, beautiful, animating impulses that we have that sometimes I think don't feel good for other people or don't feel good for us. So just to double click on them, because we moved through it pretty quickly, altruism can turn into pathological altruism. She writes, selfless actions and service to others are essential to the well-being of society and the natural world, but sometimes our seemingly altruistic acts harm us, harm those whom we are trying to serve or harm the institutions we serve in. Then there's empathy, which can turn into empathic distress. She writes, when we are able to sense into the suffering of another person, empathy brings us closer to one another, can inspire us to serve, and expands our understanding of the world. But if we take on too much of the suffering of another and identify too intensely with it, 
we may become damaged and unable to act. Then there's integrity, which can slide into moral suffering. She writes, integrity points to having strong moral principles, but when we engage in or witness acts that violate our sense of integrity, justice, or beneficence, moral suffering can be the outcome. Then there's respect, which can disappear into the swamp of toxic disrespect. So she says, respect is a way we hold beings and things in high regard, and respect can disappear into the swamp of toxic disrespect when we go against the grain of values and principles of civility and disparage others or ourselves. And then finally, there's engagement. She writes, engagement in our work can give a sense of purpose and meaning to our lives, particularly if our work serves others, but overwork a poisonous workplace and the experience of the lack of efficacy can lead to burnout, which can cause physical and psychological collapse. Thanks as always for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at the elisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. And it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Doval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.